those keyboards, Zach and and Britt and John and I had to actually refine those numbers. There actually is a uh, computer program this incredible team came up with wow. inside of those specifically designed but retro looking computers. The trackball <laughs> that's on the computer itself is ergonomically really awkward. So if I feel like if we had to shoot one more week, we all would have gotten this bizarre carpal tunnel in a new part of our hands. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Awardist, where we are breaking down the state of the 2022 Emmys race and chatting with the actors, creators, and more who are contenders this year. I am Entertainment Weekly Executive Editor Jared Hall, and joining me this week is someone who you may know from one of our other podcasts, specifically our Binge podcast, where she co-hosted the one on all of the Fast and Furious movies. Uh, she is truly an EW superstar as head of both our audio initiatives and all of our social media. Please welcome Chanel Johnson. Chanel, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm excited to be here. I'm, you know, used to being behind the scenes a little bit more, but you know, now I get to be a voice for the people. <laughs> yes. And the people have a lot of thoughts and a lot of things to say about a specific show, the reason why you are here. We're going to get to it in just a minute. So let me fill in everyone on, on what we're talking about in today's episode. Uh, you know him, you love him from The Walking Dead and The Punisher. He is starring this year in the HBO limited series, We Own This City. It's John Bernthal. That show is uh, from The Wire creator, uh, David Simon. George Pelicanos is also a co-creator here on We Own This City, which is about corruption that is uh, surrounding Baltimore PD's Gun Trace Task Force. Uh, but our first interview, and specifically why I have Chanel here, uh, that interview is with two people who are getting so much attention for the first season of their drama, Severance, Adam Scott and Patricia Arquette. You know, Chanel, this show is, it's so interesting on so many levels. I, I was trying to figure out how do I describe it? And uh, it's funny because a lot of people said to me at first, they were like, Severance, that's a, Adam Scott's in it. It's a comedy, right? And I'm like, you'd think, but <laughs> I mean, while there are some like funny moments, it is not a comedy. Um, and then I was like, is it sci-fi? And it's like, well, it's sci-fi light. Like, I, but then also are the, there might be some thriller aspects going on. I don't even know. How do you describe this show to people? Uh, yeah, kind of the same way, just a full combination of phrases because there is no one specific genre. And I think also the way that the first season is structured, you could be lulled into thinking it's a comedy because it is very funny at times, <laughs> but then it gets really dramatic. Yeah. There's mystery. There are some sort of science fiction uh -huh. elements that we still have a lot of questions about. So I kind of do it the right. same way. I'm like, it's a sci-fi dramedy thriller kind of <laughs> across the board because they're still sort <laughs> right. of revealing their hand. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, in those regards, it really is what, um, you know, it makes it such a unique series, especially this year in a very crowded landscape of, of television shows. Um, and it's created a lot of conversation, um, just people getting so into it. Yeah, I feel like I've heard a lot of people say the same thing. It's kind of like, you know, you really got to stick with it through the first couple episodes and then it really takes off. And um, I've heard so many people at like various FYC events um, around town, like talking to each other, like, have you watched Severance? Oh my God, that finale. Like, I thought it was just going to be a limited series, but then that 
that episode and you're like, oh, there's more to come. Yeah. Um, how did, without, uh, we won't, we won't spoil it here for folks who haven't uh, seen the whole thing, though uh, there may be some some spoilery conversation in that interview coming up a little later, so be warned. But once you got to that finale, how did you feel? Because I know people have a very um, like visceral, emotional reaction to it. I Well, first of all, I did not actually watch it when it first started. And a friend of mine was like, you have to watch this show. It's absolutely crazy, <laughs> but in a way that is hard mm -hmm. to explain because in a lot of ways, it spends so much time kind of being understated, even, at this, even though it's like very tense and very eerie. Um, so for me, yeah. like going into it, I thought I sort of knew what to expect. I knew there was going to be a little bit of a mystery about what this like being severed actually means. You get the top line, which is that yeah. people, you know, go to work and they don't remember what they do in their work day. And while they're at work, they mm -hmm. don't remember the rest of their life. So very intriguing from the jump. But then just like the tone of it is very, it kind of starts out supposed to feel like an office environment, but kind of in this way that's almost sort of next level creepy about it, where it's like you literally don't mm -hmm. know anything about your job. Everybody sort of smiles at you and pretends that that's normal and like you have all of the tools you need, <laughs> but you don't. And then so you kind of in a lot of ways feel as isolated as the severed employees where you're just like, what is happening? What? Even though as an yep. audience, you get plenty of glimpses um, to the rest of it. And so as the mystery kind of unfolds and you realize there are all these different little twists, kind of some huge, some really small, but affect the overall plot. By the time you get to the end, when there's truly just like a big moment where a character shouts this revelation that the audience actually knows already, <laughs> then it just ends mm -hmm. and you're like, wait, I, I absolutely need to know what's going to happen next. And it just you're like slightly disappointed because you're like, really, that's where it ends. I have so many questions, but at right. the same time, it makes me so eager. I was like, there has to be another episode. I can't wait to press play on the next parts of it just to know mm -hmm. where it goes from there and how they work out those questions yeah. that they've uh, raised, even with the, the answers that we've gotten. Yeah. Frustrating, but good TV in yeah. those regards, uh, because they, they really lured people in and almost like guarantee that you will stay along for the ride once uh, yeah. season two arrives. Um, speaking specifically about uh, Adam Scott, uh, this is a guy who is obviously very much known for comedy. He has gotten to display his dramatic chops a bit over the years. Uh, but what do you love about him in this role? Adam is so fascinating in this role. And he talks about it and has talked about it a little bit. Like this is unlike role, any role that he's ever gotten to do because he's been so comedy focused. And even though there are comedic beats that he contributes to here, it really is like the crux of the show is about the sort of dramatic emotional experience of all of the characters, about building those friendships. Even the characters that are at first there more for comic relief don't stay that way. They're not static. And he has the really hard job of both being sort of the audience's way in, like discovering it with his character, but then at the same time, having these really complex emotional layers for his, the version of him that's on the outside, which is going through grief, really misses his wife, you find out is part of his backstory. And um, he says it was kind of a math equation to juggle that. And he, ultimately, he pulls it off really well. Like for this to be your first big dramatic role is one where you're essentially playing two parts, too, of the same person in this sort of, um, uh, well, sort of exactly severed personality uh, and he really pulls it off and it feels cohesive and you really do become really invested in his journey as with all of the other characters and so for him I think it's really going to be an interesting year to see how much like people are very intrigued by that with him and I'm fascinated to see if it sort of pays off or people are like all right we really bought into it we really want to reward him for this because I think he is doing something 
particularly interesting for his career. Uh, absolutely. And then you factor into it Patricia Arquette, who, I mean, it's just, she's been doing such stellar work. I mean, she's always great, but especially, mm -hmm. I don't know, it feels like the last seven to ten years, there's been this, like, something else to what Patricia does. And this, mm -hmm. uh, this, this series is also just another great um, showcase for her. And I know a lot of people have, <laughs> you know, kind of looked at her as like, ooh, Patricia Arquette, have, are you guys seeing what she's doing here? Like, that's, yeah. that's the kind of thing I'm hearing. Yeah, she was talking about how, uh, for her, she even when she got the script and stuff for this project, when Ben Stiller first brought it to her, um, he's, of course, the executive producer and directed mm. most of the episodes for the season. Mm. And they've worked together before. Yeah, right. He worked on uh, Dana Mora with her, Escape from Dana Mora. Yeah. And she was talking about how she didn't really get Severance reading it at first. There wasn't, <laughs> especially for her character, <laughs> not a lot of her inner workings are on the page. So she really just mm -hmm. trusted Ben to lead her through it. But then like that for her in her career right now, I think has been a really big driver. She talks about that she just wants to sort of still take those risks as an actress um, and have yeah. a lot of fun, obviously, with people who she enjoys working with. But I think that is what it might be easy to forget about an actress like Patricia Arquette is like she's done so yeah. much great work. She doesn't have to do anything more if she wants to, but she still just has yeah. a love for it and, and finding ways to challenge herself. And I feel like that's super apparent with the character that she plays in this show. Yeah, she's definitely doing that here. Um, I, I mentioned a little bit about how this is a show that, you know, I'm seeing a lot of people talking about and uh, you in your job here at EW overseeing all, uh, you know, of our social media. Um, I'm, I'm curious from your perspective how you have seen not specifically like the way shows, uh, you know, present themselves over social media, but specifically because we are in Emmy season, how like Emmy campaigning, um, you know, ha has really taken on a whole other life also over social media. Yeah, I think the biggest way, there are kind of two big ways that social media plays into award season in general. For campaigning, what it really is, is there's just so much TV now. And so you're really competing for attention in a way that gets harder and harder every year. And kind of the best way to convince people to watch your show and then hopefully vote for it is to make sure that people are talking about it so that you're also building like a sense of FOMO with the voters themselves, right? Like you're competing mm. for them to just even give your work a glance and then if it's the kind of thing where you create enough buzz where they're more likely probably to tune in. I think two of the biggest examples of that in recent years where the shows were really strong anyway, but definitely because they were talked about all the time, I think they finally got pushed maybe up to that next layer of conversation is Schitt's Creek and its final season and Euphoria. Um, obviously, Zendaya ends up winning the... Mm. Best Actress Award or Outstanding Actress yeah. Award and like one of the youngest ever. And I think a lot of that is attributed to just how much people talked up like her performance on that show, the show itself. With Shits Creek, that was one that critics and stuff loved the whole time. And obviously mm -hmm. going into its final season, that's sort of the best chance to finally win some <laughs> awards after not really doing that. But also just like the the fervor, like you never were not hearing about that show, even though it's yeah. got a pretty short season run. Um, mm -hmm. People were just so invested in those characters and talking about it every episode. And I think that really encourages people to take a look and be like, actually, maybe the folks are onto something. <laughs> let's reward <laughs> this work. We thought it was good the whole time, but let's actually give it some real love in form of uh, hardware. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Is there a platform in particular where you think uh, these campaigns have the best kind of life? I think Twitter is always going to be mm. really integral for this. Um, yeah. Instagram, of course, is a really popular thing, and you get a lot of talent, actually. It's probably more on Instagram 
um, across shows than Twitter. But Twitter is where that sort of ongoing conversation happens. It is like the most real time way to consume fandom around the shows. So, you know, I feel like this isn't about TV, but just sort of an example of that is like, there are plenty of people in the United States, for example, who know stuff about K-pop just because people talk about BTS on Twitter all day. Um, and I think it's sort of the same in with TV to a certain extent, where as these things are buzzing, not just the week of release, but as you see sort of the fandom swell continue over a long period of time, really makes people tune in, even if it's late, to be like, all right, I need to stop missing out on what everybody's talking about. <laughs> and that's always going to happen mm -hmm. the most often, I think, on Twitter. Makes total sense. Okay, so we are going to uh, maybe perhaps generate some more of that, uh, you know, chit chat as we talk about two specific categories this year, which is kind of inspired by uh, our conversation about severance. I'd like to talk about the supporting actor and actress in a drama series. Let's start with the actors, which uh, in terms of severance, uh, you know, John Turturro is part of that conversation mm -hmm. a bit, as is Christopher Walken. Uh, let me give you a little bit of a laundry list here of other folks. Kieran Culkin, Matthew McFadden, Billy Crudup, Oh Young Sue. Uh, Nicholas Braun, Giancarlo Esposito, Jonathan Banks, Alan Ruck, Eric Dane, David Harbour, Chris Sullivan, Park Hasu, Mark Duplass, Gil Birmingham, so many more. A lot of those names there, of course, are from Succession. Uh, we also yeah. have a few from Better Call Saul. Are there any like real standouts in that group for you that, that you're just like, not only are they certainly going to get nominated, but you think they have the greatest chance at a win? I think the standouts for me looking at it are uh, Matthew McFadden. Like, I think he mm -hmm. just, his character got to take a, quite a leap <laughs> on the show and sort of like, especially at the end, people were obsessed with that. Um, I think he will get a lot of deserved recognition for people. Yeah. Uh, for me personally, we're talking about severance. Like John Turturro is so great in this season. And I think a really, it's not that people don't expect him to be a great actor, but I think there was like with that particular storyline with him and Christopher Walken, people weren't expecting mm -hmm. to feel so touched by it. And I yep. think it's the kind of storyline that plays really subtly and with other actors maybe does not hit you as emotionally. But because mm -hmm. of those two, particularly John Turturro, who sort of is the more of the focus in that arc with those characters, um, you're just incredibly invested. I'm like, oh, one of my favorite love stories of the year is on Severance with John Turturro <laughs> right. and Christopher Walken. <laughs> Could not have anticipated that. Um, no. I'm really curious to see what happens with someone like Eric Dane because he had some yeah. really standout episodes on Euphoria. And I want, I'm want. i curious mm -hmm. to see if that does translate, like if he stays in people's minds long enough to uh, really get all the way to the Emmys and get that nomination and get some votes. I think that one is really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, another one who is kind of a perennial contender is Giancarlo Esposito. Like he's good in everything. Yeah. He's in every show right now. He's, so. uh, yeah. Yeah. He, he kind of does no wrong. Run. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and, you know, especially with that show going into its final season, they'll they'll have that other uh, back half of the final season. And so we'll still hear about Better Call Saul next year at the Emmys as well. But um, he's always so good and and was, you know, of course, over the run of Breaking Bad as well. Bringing up Eric Dane, they invested a lot more into his character in season two in ways that I was not expecting. And my yeah. gosh, did he deliver? Like, he really went there with the material, <laughs> went there with the material, um, <laughs> and just was, like, fully committed and invested and made you just made your heart break for him, um, mm -hmm. but also a little angry at him as well. Yeah. Um, so it's like, come on, like, like 
get yourself together. We didn't, we need you to like pull it together just for a minute here. You know, there's, there's obviously something much bigger going on that you want him to kind of, uh, you know, work through and, and come out on the other side of this, um, kind of intact. It, mm -hmm. He just, it was kind of heartbreaking. Um, so yeah, he's definitely one I would love to see kind of jump up a little bit. He, he has some strong, um, competition here with all the succession guys, better call saw and of course squid game. So this is a really interesting yeah. category this year. Yeah. On the supporting yeah. actress side, uh, some more succession folks, Sarah Snook and Jay Smith Cameron. Uh, we've also got Julia Garner. We have Ray Seahorn, Christina Ricci, a couple from squid game, Jung Ho Yun and Yun. Jung Yoon, also from Euphoria, Sydney Sweeney, um, Juliana Margulies, Patricia Arquette. There we go. There she is from Severance, of course. Fiona Shaw, Christine Baranski, Millie Bobby Brown, Chrissy Metz, Glenn Close. This is another just outstanding category. Uh, all season, as we've been kind of breaking down categories, <laughs> you're just like, holy cow, I, I don't know if I'm a voter how I would even decide. But I think Sarah Snook is a shoe-in here. Julia Garner has won this category a couple times before. Yep. Um, we've seen the Squid Game cast, uh, you know, they did so well at uh, the, the SAG Awards. Ray Seahorn is criminally uh underrepresented in this category in years past and people think she should have won if not once but twice already um wh who's kind of yeah. standing out for you here i'm really i mean i agree that sarah snook julia garner like those people are going to be hard to beat <laughs> in this mm, category yeah. um but i'm also really fascinated kind of in general about kind of the overlap between sort of crowd pleasing roles and really uh, respected, venerated actresses. I'm thinking even of like Juliana mm. Margulies' character on The Morning Show, where it's like, yeah. people love her. And then I'm like, oh, she's playing this like high-powered queer character who is in this, you know, little affair with Reese Witherspoon. That's amazing. Yeah. Now I'm watching yep. just because I'm also compelled. <laughs> um, right. And I think there's like a lot of that too, where there's a mix of people who you, whose work you love anyway, and now they're doing things that seem either a little bit surprising for them or uh, just in a way that gets people talking more, you know, speaking back to that social media thing. So I think that's a big one. I'm also curious with Squid Game because um, Jung Hyo Yun won the SAG Award uh, for her role. Yeah. If she can, if that can translate to some, some right. more love, possibly a win at the Emmys. I think that's a really interesting one uh, to watch for me. And I think um, she was on this show, Sydney Sweeney. I think that's a big yeah. question mark because she was another standout from Euphoria this season. If that'll sort of push her over the top as well. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think still it's going to come down to trying to beat Julia Garner, Sarah Snook, especially with Ozark ending. Um, that's going to yeah. be tough. But there is, I think, a lot of really fascinating competition that could really contend in a way that maybe in other years I'd be mm -hmm. like, ah, oh, they were good. But I can't see people giving them the vote. Right. Yeah. It's, it's so tough this year. Sydney Sweeney, as you mentioned, she had some really outstanding material, uh, especially kind of the first half of the season of Euphoria and just like Eric Dane really knocked it out of the park. And you know, it is final season, uh, just wrapped of This Is Us. Um, and they ended mm -hmm. really well. Chrissy Metz had some outstanding stuff this season, especially with her and Chris Sullivan, like the end of yeah. their character's marriage and then taking care of, you know, a, a dying parent. She had some really good material. I, in this category this year though, I, I don't know. It's, I don't, I don't think she's going to get in there, but I, I think she's deserving. I mean, if we could have like 10 nominees, you know, but we can't, <laughs> yeah. alas, it's going to be a, it's going to be a much smaller category come uh, July once those nominations are announced. Okay. Speaking of nominations, what is a, who is a performer or what is a show that you think should be getting more attention and is on your 
dream list for a nomination? Okay, so I don't think this is actually necessarily totally off the map, but it could be. Um, I'm going to talk about an animated show, which is Arcane on Netflix, I think is so good. And people loved it when it came out in, I think it was November of last year. Uh, Mm -hmm. But just since then, just the art, first of all, reminds me a little bit of sort of Into the Spider-Verse, where they have kind of a main (laughs) animation style, but then they really just let artists kind of depart from that in specific moments and specific episodes in ways that are really effective. And then the story, even though it's, you know, it would be easy to say oh, it's based on a video game. It's just kind of action adventure fun. It's the, at the core, it's about trauma and family bonds. And mm. it's so emotionally resonant. And I think um, in the animated category, up until kind of last year, for the most part, the kinds of shows that win are straight animated comedies. Um, yeah. But I think with um, it was Primal last year that won. Like, they, there, there seems to be a bit of an expansion in recent years, uh, specifically last year, where people are letting animators take more risk in terms of the kinds of stories that they're telling, yeah. and then also possibly rewarding them. So, in that mm-hmm. category, I'm very interested to see what kind of wins the day by the time we get mm-hmm. to the nominations, and then. I just think this show in particular is a really strong example of boundary pushing um, for mm-hmm. what animated work can do for television. And yeah. So for me, that's the one I would love to see kind of bubble up there and get some love. And it's got yeah. like a strong voice cast. Haley Steinfeld, um, one of the actresses from Yellow Jackets, plays one of the central characters whose name is escaping me. But um, mm. it, there, it's so interesting. It's got all the pieces. And I'm, I'm curious to see if mm-hmm. a show like Arcane can really push through. Yeah, I've heard a lot of people talk about the show. I, it has a lot of fans. Of course, fandom always doesn't equal nomination, but uh, maybe right. that fandom will be loud enough on social media. <laughs> We're bringing it back <laughs> yeah. to that, uh, to, you know, to get voters' attention. Speaking of voters, uh, I, I think they are going to reward these next two with nominations. Of course, time will tell, but, uh, you know, Regardless, we could not be more thrilled to have them on this episode of the Awardist Podcast coming up right after this break. Severance stars Adam Scott and Patricia Arquette. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to the Awardist. Don't sever your brain from this podcast just yet because we have an outstanding interview for you guys right now with Patricia Arquette and Adam Scott, stars of Severance. Enjoy. Today, I'm joined by two of the stars of Severance, the popular new series on Apple TV Plus. Adam Scott and Patricia Arquette, welcome to the Awardist. How are you today? Welcome. Great. How are you doing? Doing all right. Thanks for being here. I'm excited to talk about this show. Um, it's one that I ha- I watched it through and then immediately had to watch it again. So my first question for you guys, just to take it back towards the beginning. I know uh, Ben Stiller, the executive producer and director of most of the episodes, pitched or sort of introduced you both to the concept of the show. But once you were able to get like the scripts and really dig into the story, what was the most surprising thing for you to discover as you kind of saw everything unfold? Adam, I'll start with you. I mean, when I first read it, I just thought this is exactly the kind of thing I I've always wanted to do. It's the it's exactly the kind of thing I like to watch, uh, just as a fan and audience member. It's what I gravitate towards, and not really something I'd had the the chance to do. Um, plus, in in, in it just aside from the genre itself and the and the story itself, it was a great character. Um, so I was just excited 
all around and having worked with Ben before, I was super excited. And this is even before Patricia came on board, which was uh, triply exciting. As far as how, what was the most surprising thing? I guess it was just because we're kind of world building, we're creating this this whole weird tone and world, but within the confines of that, just the humanity of the characters uh, that Dan created and that Ben kind of had an eagle eye on the whole time was what continually surprised me was just how the characters themselves were able to uh, really emerge throughout the story. And as the season went on, as I was kind of reading the scripts as they came to us, um, I was constantly surprised by uh, by these kind of fantastical turns, but also how how real um, the the characters' journeys through that fantastical story was. Patricia, you said everything was kind of surprising for you. Do you remember like one thing, like initially as you were reading, that sort of made you sort of sit back and go, "Oh, wait a second, <laughs> this is actually even wilder than I thought." I just got the first. Um script at first. So, I mean, really everything became a revelation after that. You know, I was like, what is this? Why am I playing this? Why do you want me to play this? Who is this person? What is this company doing? So it was really just a continual evolution of surprises. In a way, I felt a lot like the audience that every episode I would get would be like, whoa, what's happening? Where are people going? And I kind of jumped in and agreed before I knew all of that. We didn't have all of those scripts. So, but, but as Adam was saying also to reiterate, um, this rich world that they had created that Dan had written. And, you know, what was also fascinating to me as an actor was like, we picked up Rickon's book. There's like, you know, many, many pages already written or if I'd ask about Kier and the backstory and the spirituality kind of early Kier methodology, uh, I would get so much information. Yeah. And on the set, you would open a drawer and there would be all of these incredible props that you probably would never see. But as an actor, you had them. And then if you needed to use them in the scene, there they were. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, was, it was just really amazing. It really, you're right. It was a complete world that we were stepping into as far as just stepping on the set. You there was really nowhere you could turn where you'd see any any cracks in the facade. It was it was com- it was complete, uh, which was incredibly helpful. I like um, as fans are sort of rewatching it, they notice those little details too, and I'm sure there are plenty that mm-hmm. we don't even see because the camera's not close enough. I read the New York Times piece with the prop master Catherine Miller, where she talked about like how they put so much attention to detail, including like the keyboards not having escape keys because the employees never escape or something like that. Did you have kind of a favorite detail that you sort of came across while you were working on the show that sort of stuck with you? I mean, I also don't want to give out spoilers, but there are some barnyard animals that I felt (laughs) upset I never got to meet. Let's just leave it there. You know, we should have just put one in your dressing room. I know. I was pretty lonely all those times I was in lockdown. I could have had one little baby goat. One yeah. baby. That'll that'll have to be for season two. Patricia and I, our apartments were like a block or two away from each other. And and we were continually in, in lockdown. Uh, <laughs> like, like three or four times we had to just... <laughs> <laughs> shut shut it down in these apartments um in uh, in New York. Um 
I guess my favorite prop, you know, Kat and her team were incredible, and they and they those keyboards that you were talking about. Uh, Zach and and Britt and John and I had to actually refine those numbers. There actually is a uh, computer program this incredible team came up with wow. inside of those ancient, you know, uh, those specifically designed but retro-looking computers, and so the actual process of refining the numbers uh, was something that we sat there and did for hours and hours. And we all became pretty good at it. But the the trackball <laughs> that's that's on the computer itself is ergonomically really awkward. So if I feel like if we had to shoot one more week, we all would have gotten this bizarre uh, carpal tunnel in a new <laughs> part of our hands. <laughs> I didn't even know all that. That's so cool. Yeah, that's incredible. I, I, especially the end, what when they finally uh, hit quota and they get that little animation of Kier, it makes me think of just yeah. like old video games. So now I'm like, where where totally. do we get the simulation so people can play it? <laughs> yeah, totally. Zach was by far the best at refining. He had figured it all out in like the first week and a half. That's wow. so in line with his character too, which is yeah, incredible. 100%. <laughs> um, so of course, most of the main players in the show are living a kind of double life, whether they're genuinely severed or like in a case of Harmony sort of playing as if she's living as a severed person. Uh, I imagine for you guys trying to keep all of the details of these scripts together, it's hard to track. So was there something that you could kind of latch onto about each of your characters to sort of map that through the season. So like, even though, you know, the personalities are slightly different, especially for Mark or for, you know, Harmony when she's trying to be Mrs. Selvig, was there something that you sort of kept as a core, like tenet of the character to to help guide you through? Um, Patricia, you can start with that one. Well, I, I feel like I remember as we got further into the process, Adam was really good about, okay, where were we before? Where were we after? What's going on now? Here's where my, you know, we would kind of all support each other about what we remembered was going on. And we had a great, you know, um, script supervisor that helped with that too. And Dan and, and Ben were very on point about that also. Um, and there were certain kind of specific things that my character was working on and then big things that happened at work that then impacted the next period for her. So there were some you know, definite demarcations, I think, to kind of hold on to. What about for you, Adam? Yeah, it was, it was, uh, it could get a little confusing because we were going back and forth, but we we're also shooting the whole season at once. So we could be shooting episode three in the morning and nine in the afternoon sometimes and going back and forth from Innie to Audi. The thing that, that I kind of ended up finding really helpful was when we started shooting the, the elevator shots where we sort of go from any to Audi or vice versa and having to do it really fast like that kind of brought it brought the differences between them into sharp focus at least for for me and it kind of became like a math problem like it was just a matter of one is 40 odd years of life experience and everything that that goes with that. And the other one is sort of a more or less a clean slate, like two and a half years old and really limited experience. And that internal shift, having to like figure out how, because we kind of, they built this whole rig for that elevator shot, 
with like part of the background of the elevator and then this big track with the for the camera and the going in and and sort of stepped into that not really knowing how we were gonna do it and ben had the idea maybe your eyes kind of flutter and, and so we kind of went with that and and we would jump in and do a few of them every couple of weeks and it was kind of a great process with ben because it was just sort of let's just screw around and see what feels right and so we eventually landed on on what we landed on which was really fun to to figure it out and and once we landed on what we wanted how we wanted to do it i could have done it all day because it it, it never felt all, you know 100% it was like it became like this obsessive thing wanting to get the shot exactly right and the turn from one to the other exactly right um and we ended up doing a bunch of them and they're kind of sprinkled throughout the season but you also had to think about where the innie is exactly at that moment in that episode and 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 then where he the the Audi is when he kind of transforms what his last mm -hmm. moment was that morning what was going on for him so it was taking those those two things into account and it was just really fun but that really helped kind of really distill the the shift down to down to one quick moment as you guys were experimenting with it because in the show it ends up being a, a pretty tight shot on your faces did you guys even yeah. experiment with like how much physicality you could bring to that shot or was it always kind of going to be close up it was always going to be pretty close um uh yeah it was always but i think they 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 played a little bit with like a little bit wider but i think it being uh fairly close ended up being the most effective. Um, it was just a matter of what exactly the camera move would be and what exactly the the, the focus uh, would be, and if they were zooming or you know all of that really technical stuff uh, alongside kind of emotionally what that kind of that shift would be. It's really cool, and and now I want to see like a supercut of you guys just doing different things <laughs> until you sort right. of landed on the right one. There's a lot of bad ones uh, that they didn't use, thankfully. <laughs> I'll save it for the blooper reel or something that Apple yeah. releases. <laughs> I'd like to talk about the relationship actually between Mark and Harmony, because especially like the way that the audience is introduced to it, the first thing that we hear Harmony say is, you know, when Mark comes in the room, she's like, oh, you look awful. And they're, they're never <laughs> friends. And then like on the flip side, Mark is a little, uh, seems a little put upon by Mrs. Selvick and like her leaving her trash cans <laughs> in the wrong place. So they're not friends, but they're also not totally adversaries. So for you two, kind of how did you find what that tone of that relationship was, especially early? Obviously, it shifts as the season goes along. They even reach a point of almost connection. So how did you guys want to navigate that? Um, well, I, you know, it was, first of all, I had to get over being a little freaked out that I was going to be <laughs> working with Patricia. Um, and that was that took a while but it actually helped because at least for ms cobell um you know she is you know for all intents and purposes any mark's uh mother figure this mm -hmm. is his boss but also the the ultimate authority figure there's no one higher than her at least in in their in mdr's world um and she, you know, what she says and does has huge, huge consequence for them and their their lives. It all kind of begins and ends with Ms. Cobell. Um, so the dynamic uh, 
and in the in the office was was pretty clear on the page. Um, but then we kind of got there, and w- once you're there, it, it, there's a lot of sort of experimenting and trying one thing, and then taking a shift and trying something else that uh, that needs to happen to really find something that's so tonally specific and tonally walking in, we weren't exactly sure mm-hmm. what we were going to do or where we were going to be going anyway. So we all kind of just jumped in and started experimenting and finding it uh, together, which was which was super fun. It seems like, you know, people in general have things from their parents, you know, whatever dynamic they're working out. And yeah, I was not clear about what this tone was, but Ben was kind of pushing me towards this kind of colder thing. And I, I had done research on cults and businesses and corporations and armies and all these kind of different corporate structures and what upper management is like. What does that mean to her self-esteem, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, in a way you could argue that maybe Cobell is like the cold mother, that you never Mm -hmm. know exactly where you stand and you never can get their approval all the way. And then on the outside, Harmony is kind of, I mean, not Harmony, um, Zelvig is kind of playing with this, you know, discombobulated kind of trying to be warm, um, but she's putting it on because it's like a character, but she's not really an actor. So she's making this kind of thing up of this fumbling, bumbling neighbor who can insinuate themselves into your life, which is a different kind of mommy issue thing, right? It's like, so you have these two dynamics that are like, because also Mark is so open and he is a two-year-old inside and Harmony's colder inside. And then you go outside and he's colder outside and Zelvik is warmer outside. It's like the shifting dance that they do together to get what they try to get from each other or whatever they need from each other, whether they accomplish it or not, is this kind of different dances. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And over the course of the season, any mark becomes disillusioned and uh, with with Ms. Cobell, in fact, heartbroken by Ms. Cobell, because she is his worldview, and that gets uh, shaken. And so he's, by the end of the season, he's uh, completely uh, disillusioned with her, whereas on the outside, Audi Mark, slowly over the course of the season, sort of warms up to Ms. Selvig and uh, lets her in a little bit. And so by the end, they're they're these kind of funny friends. Yeah. And for me, it's like really neither of these characters that I'm playing that are all the, the same person, I'm really even know themselves because they're kind hmm. of created and forged from this corporation and what the value systems is of this corporation and what the accomplishments are of this corporation. And in a way, the only moment I feel like she really has that's true is when she loses her own footing in a moment mm-hmm. in the party sequence right, and kind of forgets which one she is and who she's supposed to be and is just in the moment a little bit. Yeah, that is, well, first, when I was actually preparing uh, for this, I came across, Patricia, an uh, interview that you gave back in 1997 where you said something that was really interesting and I thought actually connects to Cobell in particular, um, where you said, quote, women are such complex creatures and that's what's exciting about being an actress 
you can investigate the experience of different types of women, including all their various survival mechanisms. And the audience really gets to see that with Cobell, where at first, you know, in the beginning of the series, we think she has all the control, or at least a lot of the control, a lot of the power. And then that is completely taken away from her and she freaks out. Um, I know you have gotten to talk with like Dan and Ben about like her backstory and stuff. So for that, like, because the other thing is I'm constantly as a viewer being like, okay, what is real with her? Which parts of her are seriously how she feels and what's sort of put on. Um, and so that moment as you're playing it is that, is that probably the realest that we see Cobell in the series is when she just is freaking out after she gets suspended from the company. I mean, I think that moment, and then there's a moment in the party with Mark and then also a little bit in that end with Helly. Um, yeah. While it's threatening, I mean, she does feel that this is what's going to happen and she should know that, that this is what's going to happen. Um, but yeah, I do think she's a complicated person. I don't think she's even examined any of these things herself. And she's doing this outside kind of work that's, that she thinks will bring this corporation honor and elevate her stature, but also be doing this for Kier. Because this new guard doesn't really understand, in her mind, what the company really needs and how incredible this really would be. So she's already kind of gone rogue a bit from the very beginning. Yeah. Yeah, that moment when you when you say, um, get away from them, Mark, at the party, uh, I remember it was getting chills uh, when we were shooting it. And that's like right before... Mark turns into any Mark. That's the last thing <laughs> that that uh, that happens right before right before then. So he doesn't get a chance to react to that. To Ms. Selvig having this uh, opinion about uh, about what he should do uh, at uh, at Lumen. It's fascinating. I feel like it really sets up an opportunity for those characters to connect even more in a way that is so far at least doesn't seem quite the same for any of the other characters because uh, the idea of reintegration is introduced in the show, but is not really explored yet by any of the of our main players. Um, but it seems like uh, Mark, especially his, his Annie and Audi are sort of moving closer together in the way that they even sort of approach the world, which is fascinating. And I feel mm -hmm. like, is that something that you both are kind of excited to explore because I feel like that will be the most interesting with the Cobell character and them sort of realizing, wait, this is also someone who's been the same the whole time. Um, and if whether or not they might find more common ground in a, I mean, they'll, you know, butt heads, of course, but they might find out that they have a lot more in common. I don't really know where we're going with this because, I mean, I do know some, some things that were said to me early on, but I've intentionally not wanted to know, especially during all this press time, because I don't want to spill the beans accidentally. Yeah. So I get in trouble. <laughs> so I'm also just really excited about what they're going to come up with. I just feel, again, this kind of blind faith and just jumping back in. Mm -hmm. and, and again, even though this lady is in control, I feel like she's so out of control. And I feel as an actor on this project, I'm very out of control. Again, and I was willing to be like, I'm going to jump into this weird story that I have no idea where it's going and figure it out as we go along, because I do believe in all of you as artists. We're going to figure it out together. Yeah. And I am enjoying that process. 
Yeah, I kind of had a, a similar, I think it was right when I walked onto that set when I first, like I went there straight from the airport just because I wanted to see it and walking in there and seeing those hallways in that big office and the apartments and everything and, and just being like, oh, okay, this is a big, complete world. And I kind of decided then just to throw all control and trust into Ben. And because usually I have like a floating eye, keep keeping an eye on yeah. stuff, and I guess in a way to protect myself from mm. directors that I may not know as well or whatever, you know, that feeling, Patricia, when you're just kind of like trying to and and just deciding to put it all because I know and trust Ben and his taste and everything. And just any, um, any, uh, any, any uh, um, kind of eye I had on myself, I just got rid of it and, and just put it all that, all that uh, trust into Ben. I'm gl glad I did and kind of gave up that control is what I'm saying. Yeah, me too. And when I'd see what Aoife, one of our directors, would show up with, or Ben, once in a while I'd look at the shot and Jessica, what she was doing, it was, and the sets and the whole thing and the yeah. props that you were saying and the writing, it was so much like so exciting and enjoyable every day to kind of see what people had manifested and the world that these scenes were taking place in. Yeah, we were in good hands and, and uh, kind of, felt that way from the very start. How did it feel when you finally got to see the episodes? Because you're in this environment where you're just sort of trusting each other, uh, trusting your directors, trusting the, the writer who's already put so much of this on the page, uh, but you don't know what you have until it comes together. So like when you finally got to see the episodes, was it a relief? Like, oh, okay, we, we pulled off what we really wanted to pull off here. Um, or did you even have some more idea of that as you were working on it? Or was it a complete surprise like by the end to be like, okay, here's what it is. Well, there were some things that layered in that I know, knew were coming, but it was kind of a, again, this new presence, like the opening sequence. What is that? And the music that they chose. And there's so many scenes I'm not in. In a way, my character is very much alone all the time. Mm -hmm. Even when she's as a scene with somebody, she has this whole huh. other interior thing happening. And I got to see all these scenes that everybody else did. And it was so incredible to see Adam's work and Brit's work and everybody's work. It was just really fun to see what they'd all made. Yeah. I, I, I didn't want to see anything till we were done shooting. Cause I was just like, this is, there's too much to, to think about and too much that can screw me up if I see something and I don't like it, or if I just, if it's different than how I, uh, if, you know, cause sometimes you do something and you think it's going to, look and sound a certain way and it's it's something it just you were way way off at least that happens to me sometimes i i just didn't want to have to think about that while we were so i just i didn't watch anything until till we were done shooting and then you know ben started showing me stuff and um and yeah i was similarly just blown away by um the scope of it you know uh it's just you know those sort of establishing shots of lumen are indicative of just sort of the widescreen uh scope of this of the whole world and the whole show and uh and yeah i was just blown away and just loved it and and from from then on just hoped uh everyone else would like it too and you know because you never know 
Have you gotten to see, or I should say, how much have you gotten to see of sort of the fandom reaction? I feel like right now, because there's so much on offer to viewers, it's kind of difficult to have a show that's both really critically respected. And then also people seem to really like to do that word of mouth, like pay it forward, like, no, you have to watch this. And then also it's not that you have fans, but they're like an active fandom. They're making art, they're making toys, they're making things that inspire because they're inspired by the characters. How much of that have you gotten a scene and do like, has there been anything about it that you were like, oh, that is actually cooler than I could have imagined somebody might do? Yeah, I on Instagram I I see a lot of the people are making art, both uh, you know drawings and paintings and uh, and uh, digital drawings and paintings, but then also three dimensional uh, sculptures about you know sculpting the computer or MDR or whatever it is. It's kind of inspired a lot of artists out there, and it's incredible. I've just take pictures of it on my phone. Every time I see something, I have this severance art folder I've started because it's all um, just amazing. It's it's so lovely and uh, gratifying to see that it's inspiring anyone to, to do anything like that. I love it. I haven't seen uh, any of that. I saw somebody had set up kind of a website that was interesting. Um, but I think I'm just like so technically, you know, I'm very 1800s. Uh, so, <laughs> I'll send you some, Patricia. Okay. But I have seen a lot of fans that are like, you know, loving it. And that's exciting. And I do like to scare them a little, you know, say scary. You know, <laughs> yeah. You're very yeah. good at it. <laughs> you guys work with such a great cast of people. And you've talked already about how you guys kind of had to jump in and find the tone of it together. There are plenty of like little scenes that I think as the audience sort of stand out. But uh, Adam, I want to ask you about the music dance experience, because both in the trailer and in the show, I think the visuals of it stand out so much. And then in the show, it's also just disorienting in the right way and ends up sort of kickstarting the unraveling of this office that we see through the end of the season. Uh, first, huh, just yeah. was it as fun and wild to film as it is to watch? It was. I mean, we filmed it for a couple days. So by, you know, the end of day two, I think we'd heard that song enough, probably, and, yeah. and had, uh, you know, made those moves uh, enough. I certainly, my uh, Mark's dance moves don't get better as the day goes on. <laughs> I, I found I found that to be true. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was super fun. And something that was really cool was, you know, in MDR, there are those fluorescent lights that we'd been working under for, I don't know, eight months by the time we filmed the music dance experience. And Ben uh, had kept it from us that he had, uh, that they had rigged up, uh, the gaffers had rigged up disco lights up with the fluorescent lights. So, uh, so Trammell could, could hit the remote and suddenly we're in this kind of disco environment. Uh, So he got some genuine reactions on camera (laughs) to that. But plus these characters had never really heard this music before, or who knows if they've even danced before I decided my character had only like danced in private just to see what it was like because what you've heard about dancing, but it's not like these people, um, the innies have ever been dancing. Mm -hmm. Um, so (laughs) this is a really new experience for them. 
And an MDE is something that Mark had heard about, but wasn't sure if it was a real thing. And so it's sort of this forbidden, incredible, mysterious uh, thing that they're, it's like winning the lottery for them. And I love that this weird corporation does these weird things. I know, it's so weird. You know, that like, this is how far you can go safely, but you can't. Yeah. Funny enough that, that it was sort of like, this is the ceiling for as naughty as you can get. And that's the moment when Helly and Mark sort of lock in on, on each other a bit and just moving in the music sort of, sort of, uh, you know, opens up this, this uh, crush they have on each other. And it sort of uh, brings it to fruition a little bit. Yeah. And the experimentation of that, of like, yeah. what happens, you know, when you open up movement. And music and whose personalities what? I've, I've I've been saying it for years. Open it up to music and movement. You've, you've got it made. <laughs> It'll take you places. It's all you need. <laughs> yep. I guess tell me a little bit more about how it is to just sort of play in that environment with all of these actors. Did you sort of feel like after you get start to get a sense at least of the tone in these different scenes? Do you feel like sort of electricity? I guess between you when it finally starts to click in these different scenes because uh, for an audience like that's such a huge part of why you keep watching is not just sort of the mystery of the show but just like these relationships and watching them form so did you sort of have the same sense I guess just between yourselves as actors like figuring out all of these different beats well I felt like you know for me and Tramel, we have a specific kind of relationship in it you know mm-hmm. Milchek and, and Cobell what their thing is and it, it was very strict and so do to then be able to see Tremel kind of open up in this new way and show this whole other part of Milchek was very exciting too to see that. Um, but yeah, we were we were just kind of struggling with the tone and figuring out what our right placement was and seeing little wins for other people where they could like break out of something. I was like, oh my god, yes, they're trying that and they're allowed to do that. And they're doing it. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes I would have a lot of freedom, especially like in Zelfing in some whole other way. So it was very, very interesting. Was it similar for you, Adam? Yeah. I mean, getting to work with uh, this cast was, uh, you know, 99% of the, the joy that <laughs> that comes on set is getting to work with the the other actors and and especially over a long period of time we get this camaraderie it's, it becomes like summer camp in a way and especially you know we're shooting in pre-vaccine pandemic for at least three quarters of the shoot was pre-vaccine so it was you know masks and plastic shields and the whole deal mm-hmm. um uh so the other actors were the only people we got to see the entire faces of uh, throughout yeah. the, the whole day, we were, yeah. you know, get picked up from the apartment that you're in by yourself in a van that's sealed off uh, from the drivers. You can't really talk at all. And then you get to work and every, you know, everyone has a mask on and stuff. Um, and the shields. And then you're yeah. on set and the shields. Right. And then it's not until action that we actually get to take the mask. We have to rehearse with the mask and stuff on. So finally, you're there with people without masks when the camera's rolling. So that was our time to like have contact with people, at least yeah. for me. I, I was by myself out there. I think mm-hmm. Patricia was too. Yeah. 
And, and also, you know, that was really hard too because we didn't get to, at least we got these breaks where we took everything off. But when I'm yeah. like yelling at Natalie, I was really freaked out because I'm going up to this woman, my character, I'm a few inches away and I'm yelling at her, which already makes me uncomfortable as a person in general. But then also it's before we have shots and I'm like, what if I hurt her? What if I give yeah. her something? I'm actually afraid to be that close to her. I don't want to hurt her. Um, and then so much of a part of my joy of making film is playing around with the crew. And we still were a little bit being able I to know. do it. But it was like six feet away. And, and I didn't get to see their faces and their smiles. And what did they think of that take? Where you, you have all these kind of micro communications with people usually. And we just couldn't have them. And it may be in a good way for the show, which is very, I don't know, it's very scientific in a way, very isolated, isolated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it's like the whole experience was kind of compounding that all the time. And, and so these watching these bondings happen between the characters and watching Adam's work. I mean, there was a boyish openness about him that was so sweet and, and watching that happen. And then that was hard to be mean to such a sweet <laughs> little thing but dev ben made me do it <laughs> <laughs> yeah um speaking of ben actually so you've both worked with him before is there a difference in uh how he is as a performer as a director are they separate or does some of what he brings as a performer sort of bleed into his directing no i think you know a lot of uh you know ben's really great with with actors. And a lot of that comes from being an actor himself and being an excellent actor himself. Um, and being so facile with comedy and uh, drama, not only comedy and drama, but comedy, drama, and he's this incredible visionary uh, filmmaker. I, I, I've felt for a long, long time, he's one of our great filmmakers. And it's just so terrific to, to, to see that being the consensus uh, now, I think Dana Mora and yeah. and uh, and Severance have really um, uh, shown uh, everyone. But I felt it back with Tropic Thunder and Midi and Cable Guy and stuff. It's just like this, you know. No one can make movies like this, and so they're so different yet all, you know, uh, have a, a strain going through them. Anyway, um, you know, Ben, as you know, I, I, I flirting with disaster is one of my favorite movies ever for a long, long time. So much so that this motorcycle movie that, that I was in called Torque, I threw in a tip of the hat to flirting with disaster in it and it's in the movie. <laughs> and so, and once I, I had a friend that had been in a scene in flirting with disaster with Ben and Patricia, and she eventually had to ask me to stop asking her questions <laughs> about, working with the two of them on that movie uh, because it just got annoying. And she's like, it's one scene. I've told you everything. There's <laughs> nothing else to tell. So getting to be there with Ben and Patricia and making uh, the show was, was incredible. Um, and I've also annoyed them with, with questions about flirting with disaster. But, um, but yeah, I think Ben's, uh, you know, having been uh, on sets for, a good portion of his life and having made 
uh, a lot of incredible stuff as a director, incredible TV shows and movies, really it's incredibly uh, additive to, to his direct. Dan Erickson, the creator and main writer for the show, yeah. told us that it took him and Ben a while to sort of settle on exactly where season one ended. By the time you got involved, had they worked that out or did you got did you get to see them sort of play with what could happen at the very end of season one? Yeah, it it shifted around a bit. I don't want to I don't know what I should or sh- shouldn't say. I, I know that at one point it ended sort of further along then oh, okay. where it ends. Um, and I, I think that, uh, I think this was the perfect, perfect place to, to end it. I think Dan and Ben, uh, kind of went back and forth a few different ideas, a few different places, but I think this is the, this was the, the, the right spot. Yeah, it's definitely the moment where I'm like, wait, there's no, there's no more. I know, <laughs> I, I, I know, <laughs> I know. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's okay. It'll it'll keep me excited for season two. Um, so I guess my yeah, last sure. question, actually, like, you know, it'll be a while before we get season two. But is there a question that you can't wait to see answered on the show? You know, I for me, uh, the questions are all sort of emotion emotional um, and having to do with information like the information that any mark finds out at the end of episode nine how far like is he going to be able to what's he going to be able to do with that information and how far is that information going to spread and if it does spread if it, it, it w- how would that affect any anyone but i mean the thing is is what we don't know is if that gets out there because there's a lot that happens in episode nine, right? All the characters are exposed to a lot of new information. So Mm -hmm. I just want to know how that affects everyone uh, going forward. That's the biggest question for me. And if anyone is able to do anything with that information, what is it? And, Mm -hmm. and will they be able to, to better their, their situation or not? Yeah. Yeah, because I guess it could be the kind of thing where they know, and then it's just more torture that they can't access it after that. So I don't know. I, I I feel like that's the that's the cool thing about the finale to me is like, oh my god, all of this stuff just happened, but is it just out into the ether? Yeah. Or yeah, yeah. Those anyway. That's those are my my questions. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today. Um, I won't keep you thank any you. longer, but uh, love the show. Can't wait for season two. And, you know, good luck even Thanks. just the rest of this year with the reactions to it. They've been so popular so far. Awesome. Um, and I can't wait to see what's next. All right, Chanel. Uh, first of all, well, I, I'm glad you tried to get a little bit of something out of them about season two, because of course, you know, what can they really say? But I, yeah. I did love hearing that what he, you know, kind of hopes uh, that direction will go. Um, what are you hoping for out of season two? I think just even more adventure. They introduced so many mm. nuggets of like weird semi sci fi things, but they haven't fully sort of unleashed the craziness. We got a taste of it with those last <laughs> couple of episodes, but I really kind of mm. just want season two to just ball to the wall, like n- insanity, but in the best way. <laughs> That's yeah, what I just hope. lean into it. Yep. Uh, and, and hopefully they will. Um, and then a really important question Would you participate in a severance program at work if they offered it to us? 
I don't think we could here. Well, that's fair. That's true. You need to still be connected to the outside world, given our job. That's a that's a really good point. If we weren't in these jobs, I don't know. I don't think I would. I I don't know. It's an interesting prospect. It's for me to observe others to do, not for me to participate in. I think that's my feelings on it. I think kind of one of the central things that the show raises too is like, who are you when you know nothing about yourself, like at your core? Yep. And I feel like for me, I would, similar to some of the characters in that show, just be too curious to leave it alone, ultimately. I'd be like, but what is 100%. happening to me? Right. I am right there with you. All right, folks, don't go anywhere. We have one more interview for you here on the award is coming up with We Own This City star John Bernthal. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Awardist. All right, up now is our interview with We Own This City star John Bernthal. EW's Darren Franich spoke with him, and this is a show that Darren has advocated for. He thinks folks need to be paying more attention to it because, uh, you know, it... Uh, also like The Wire, which was created by David Simon, who's one of the co-creators here, really takes a close look at the Baltimore Police Department and uh, specifically here, uh, more corruption. So without further ado, here is Darren Franich with John Bernthal. Very excited to be here today talking to John Bernthal about the amazing HBO miniseries, We Own This City. John, talk to me about getting into playing the real life, very corrupt cop, Wayne Jenkins. I heard that, uh, did you do some kind of ride-alongs with the Baltimore PD uh, as part of the kind of preparation process? Yeah, Darren, thank you. Uh, Really appreciate you having me and honored to talk about this project. I feel like you know, to be able to approach issues like this, issues uh, of policing, corrupt policing, um, race and policing, these are issues that are extremely important to me, near and dear to my heart. And um, I feel that the only way to, to approach these issues, especially in today's climate when things are so unbelievably polarized and everything is about sort of choosing a side and planting a flag, is um, you, you got to dig into the wound. You got you to approach it for all its complexities and nuance and you got to approach it for how complicated it is. And, and, and for me, I feel like to do this with David Simon and George Pelicanos, they approach their work with a journalistic integrity. And I think because of the sort of resonance of the wire in the city of Baltimore, I knew that the only way to really approach this was to research it deeply. And to finally answer your question about the ride-alongs, to go to the Baltimore Police Department or any police department and say, hey, we're telling a story about the darkest chapter in the history of your department, potentially the history of your city, you know, it's going to be really hard for those guys to kind of open you up and to open up the the process and to open up both in the stories they share and to let you sort of be a part of the process of what they do out on the streets to get to know how your character lived and what he did. So, you, you know, for me, working with those guys, I knew that they just had an amazing amount of credibility in that city. And, you know, a lot of the police officers that I got to know and got to become really close with, you know, they watch The Wire religiously and it, and it reminds them so much of how the system affects the individual and to uh, try to not take things personally. And um, so to finally answer your question, yeah, man, I, I was there. I got to go about three months early and I did uh, ride alongs pretty much every day in, in every district and got to know a lot of the guys who, who, who served on the gun trace task force 
you know, with Wayne and got to know people from his home life in Middle River and also got to get to know Wayne a little bit himself. I'm so intrigued to hear about this because obviously, you know, we own this city. Uh, you know, it's based on an amazing book, a work of investigation by uh, the reporter Justin Fenton. But you were kind of able to dig even further in your own research. It sounds like what were you kind of learning about Wayne that you that you incorporated in your performance, either from other people or maybe even from from himself? Like, how did all this kind of inform how you ultimately played him in, in the TV show? I mean, so much. I think first and foremost, David Simon. It was really important to David that we didn't just portray him as a monster and and I think that's kind of your job as a actor always is to sort of gain some sort of insight some sort of understanding and, and eventually hopefully develop a real sense of empathy for your character and and it's tough you know this show really examines Wayne's evil doings and the system that created that the culture that created that the process of him getting there but you know for me one thing that literally every police officer, uh, that knew him, even folks whose careers have been upended and destroyed because of their proximity to Wayne. Um, the guy who went to prison because he was selling drugs with Wayne, folks that Wayne had deeply betrayed, folks that still love Wayne to a person. What everybody said about him is that he was an unbelievably devoted father and that uh, he put his kids beyond everything. I mean, there's there's a, a guy, Donnie Stepp, that Wayne used to sell his drugs through and um, they would be going and, and robbing drug dealers and they would get a call from home that one of his kids was going through something and he'd abandon it right there. He'd abandon a stakeout right there to go get home to his kids. And, you know, for me as an actor, that's not about sort of absolving him of judgment. It's not really my job to judgment, but I can latch on to that. And beyond anything else in this world, I'm, I'm a father and, and I'm a husband. There's nothing in the world more important to me than my kids. You know, at the heart of, of, of any character, there's there's a real conflict. And, and the crux, I think, of, of, of Wayne's conflict is that he was engaging in this behavior that he knew ultimately would most likely keep him from being from the, the people he loved more than anything in the world. That was his kids. And, and um, you know, uh, someone like Wayne, he knew he was dishonoring his kids, but going forward uh, anyway. And I think if you asked him, he would say he did it for his kids, which, again, is, is a, a very complex and confusing conflict, but I think sort of solved the problem of trying to make him as human as possible. And I was constantly, you know, pushing David and George to let me put as much as sort of his family dynamic, or at least let that be sort of the heart of what was on his mind so much of the time. It certainly adds to our understanding of him in the show and to extraordinary levels of your performance that we're seeing these aspects of him that, you know, in a vacuum are very positive. All along, though, the show is very clear about the things he was doing that were completely, you know, breaking down other people, breaking down the world around him. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of curious. So you said that you kind of got to know Wayne a little bit. What was that kind of interaction like? Well, you know, look, Wayne's in federal prison and he's going to be there a, a long time. And honestly, uh, Darren, it's interesting. You, you know, I, I, there's times when you play real life characters where sort of getting to know the real character is like getting to know the real human being is 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 gold. And, and um, you know, for Wayne, I, I'll tell you uh, what I think influenced me more and what was most helpful was really getting to know the people that knew him really well. And, and uh -huh. I often think there's that age old adage, you know, you really find out about a character, uh, about a human being, by what everybody says about them, not by what they say about themselves. Um, look, my conversations with Wayne, if I'm being completely honest, uh, were very manipulative. I, I felt like he was always playing me, always trying to find an name, which, which was super informative, 
But, you know, he um, he is actively there's something about Wayne that never shuts off. He's always playing an angle, even from prison. He's he was trying to convince me of his innocence and then convince me of other people's guilt. And then he was sort of explaining why he did what he did. And um, look, there was there, there, there was a real insight gain there. But to me, you, you know, it, it was really the folks that he served with his his, his folks that, that 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 were really at one point enormously close with him that ultimately I feel like you know, felt really betrayed by him and, and, and betrayed by his corruption. You know, I've said it before, there are no words for the unspeakable atrocities and, and how, you know, when someone's Fourth Amendment rights are violated or when someone suffers or is victimized at the hands of corrupt policing or police brutality, people lose their freedom, they lose their lives, they're injured by police. Um, it's unspeakable, those acts. I think one thing that I really was put into my face in a really clear and cogent way in this process was there's this other group of victims on both a micro and a macro level, which is the good men and women who wear the uniform and, and have taken the lawmaker's oath and serve our communities as police and do it for the right reasons. And I got to know so many wonderful people in the Baltimore Police Department who come from the community, love the community, respect the community, have the respect of the community. I mean, it says so much about Baltimore that the same energy, the same fervor, the same anger, the same outrage that folks had after Freddie Gray they also had after the death of Sean Souter, a Baltimore Police Department. There was both, you know, there's there's corruption, mystery sort of shrouded in both cases, um, and outrage shrouded in both cases. But I think that that says so much about the people of Baltimore that it wasn't about picking a side. It was it, both of these situations were awful, and justice is needed. One of the things that I think really comes across so much in the show that you're kind of describing is um, as complex as it is, and you know, yes, this is a David Simon, George Pelicano show with so many characters and this incredible, just wide view of the city. Um, there's such a clarity to it. And to me, that really starts right from the beginning when you have this extraordinary set piece of Wayne is giving this speech to some, uh, you know, to some rookie cops. And the things he's saying about how to be a good policeman and the things he's saying about, you know, the, the proper way to police is being juxtaposed against all these awful things that are going on. And that is such a kind of announcement way to begin a show with you kind of delivering this this huge speech. Can you kind of talk about preparing for that moment and what you were kind of trying to get across about Wayne's character? I, I, I kind of keep on returning to that first uh, speech throughout the show, just the more we learn about Wayne and the more we understand just kind of how, in a way, you know, how manipulative he's being with that speech in, in some ways. Yeah, I appreciate it. I, I agree. What an unbelievable opportunity, you, you know, as an actor and, and what an interesting way to sort of start the whole thing off. It was our very first day of shooting uh, as well, which was- That's, what, uh, that's how you started? <laughs> yeah, that monologue, man, like seven pages. I was like, here we go, you know? Look, I, I, I think you really hit upon it. You know, Wayne was so celebrated in that force and in that city. The fact that he was such a great cop and the top cop and he had this swagger and had this golden shield and this absolute adoration from the department, it gave him the cover to do whatever he wanted. It also, I think, psychologically made him feel like he had a right. I think deep down he felt that in any other profession, if you're a lawyer, if you're an actor, an athlete, whatever it is, if you're at the top of your game, you deserve more compensation. And here he was, he said, look, I'm the top of the game. There was a, a systemic problem with how policing was going on in Baltimore at the time. And in that sort of chapter of the war on drugs, where they said the only way to sort of lower the murder rate is we needed to make this a numbers game. 
it's all about numbers. How many arrests are you making? How many guns are you getting off the street? How much drugs? How much money? And it's all uh, this, this huge competition. And in that, of course, you're going to just violate so many people's Fourth Amendment rights. It's how many, how much engagement can you make? How many people can you pull over? How many people can you make contact with? And I think that that system really made him top cop. He was always his stats. It was numbers on the board. He was always number one. And that literally gave him the right to go anywhere in the city. He had full jurisdiction. And ultimately, it gave him the cover to you know, run rampant all over that city and, and, mm-hmm. and, and with his corruption and his greed and the things that he did. But the things that he's saying in that speech really are the tenets of good policing. They really are. Like, if you want to be effective... And, and then you got to go to the crux of what are you trying to do? Are you trying to keep the streets safe? Are you trying to uh, fight for justice? Are you trying to protect folks who can't protect themselves? Or are you just trying to be the top cop and put the most numbers on the board? Because he's very plain. He's saying if you want to put numbers on the board, if you want to be the top cop, this is how you do it. His tactics that he's saying really are about good policing. Get to know your community. Don't hit people. Don't be violent. Lead with with empathy. Lead with getting to know people, information, understanding who's who, having relationships with folks on the street. That is community. He is literally making an argument for community policing. But the end that he is trying to reach is something very, very different. But I think it's sort of, again, you know, what David and George are, I believe, the best in the world at doing is examining a system and then taking the system and seeing how a system affects the individual in the most human and the most vital and sometimes vicious of ways. And because it's all about getting those numbers on the board, look, that's how you achieve it. But then ultimately it leads to, you know, all the things that Wayne was doing, which, you know, without a doubt was, uh, was terrible. And seeing how that kind of systemic stuff kind of changes and plays out in the life of one person is something else that I think comes across so well in the show. You know, um, what you're saying makes me think about, I think it's the second episode of the series when you kind of really begin to see, you know, not just where Wayne Jenkins was at the time of his arrest, but where he was when he was a younger rookie cop and and what that development was like. I mean, I'm curious, this is a character that you're kind of ultimately playing him over the course of about a decade and a half of his life. Um, What are some of the technical things that come into play when it comes to, you know, tracking this character from early 2000s up into 2015 and and beyond? Oh, I mean, there's so much. And again, uh, you know, unbelievable. uh, I have like unending gratitude for the people of the Baltimore Police Department and the friends that I got to make there. And by being out, going out with patrolmen and really understanding what patrol is like, versus what it's like to be in a flex squad and to be in a plainclothes unit with more jurisdiction. Uh, you know, patrols answering calls. Flex squad units are going out and they're taking the fight to the criminal and it's much more aggressive policing. But understanding where you fit in the, if you have district jurisdiction or if you have citywide jurisdiction, how different that is, the mindset of that, that you literally can be anywhere in the city and no one's checking on you. You're not reporting into anyone rather than you have these three blocks of, of, of an area and what's your jurisdiction? What what are the the, the limits of your reach? You, you know, re, just really being with those folks and understanding it, and juxtaposing it to how it was now. You know, post George Floyd to how it was post Freddie Gray is a world of difference. And mm-hmm. again, I'm just so unbelievably grateful that I kind of got this unbelievable access in this front row seat to again these issues that you know are really just 
you know, have ignited in the, in this country, uh, you, you, you know, the, the, the anti-police movement and the defund movement. I mean, it's, it's, it's really taken over this country, but, you know, I, I really felt that, um, I got to examine it in a really up close way in a city that's very much at the tip of the spirit of, of, of all of these issues. And, um, I'm just, I'm enormously grateful for yeah. that. And, and the only thing I come down with is just unbelievably complicated and there's no easy answers. There's no easy answers here. It's very interesting. You know, you were kind of talking about, of course, the legacy of The Wire, which, which you know, the, the creators of this show worked on previously. And this idea that, you know, so many aspects of that series and its investigation of this city um, became, you know, very visible national concerns kind of in, in the wake of the show. There was that kind of prophetic quality to it. Um, I, I'm kind of curious um, uh, to learn more about the filming of another really specific kind of standout sequence in the show, which is, um, you know, the reenactment of the protests and uh, of the uprising um, that occurred uh, after the killing of Freddie Gray. Um, what was it like getting prepared for that? Because that on screen, you know, that sequence really seems to capture so much of the larger event itself. Uh, uh, what was the kind of preparation like for that? And what was it like filming that on the day? Look, just like literally, you know, almost every scene in the show over the, the months that we were there, the, the, the scenes um, were shot in the, the, the place where they actually took place. And many wow. times with the real folks that were actually there that day. So, you know, we really shot that McDonald Mall, you know, where that part of the uprising kind of popped off. You know, the majority of the folks that were there you know, playing the folks in the uprising were there in the uprising. The folks that lived there still live there. They're all out on their porches and such unbelievable uh, gratitude to the producers and to Ray Green. This show was made with such sacred respect and reverence for that city. This, this show was made by the city of Baltimore, for the city of Baltimore, and with the city of Baltimore. And, and, and we, we always kept that in mind. You know, the folks that I was standing in a line with, you know, they were all real police officers. They were all guys that were there that day. And, um, it changes, it changes the air, it changes everything. And, and, and honestly, the fact that after a lot of those takes, you know, we were all hugging each other. And this isn't to say it's like some big kumbaya moment, but I think there really is something powerful and palpable in, 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 in the strength and the, the potentiality of art that you can bring folks together like that and folks can come together and, 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 and really heal in a way with art. And I have to say, you know, on, on, on most projects, what, what I appreciated, I think, more than anything else on this, on, on, on most, most things that you do, you know, you try to make a scene as entertaining as possible. You try to make it as cutting as possible, as scary as possible, as funny as possible, sometimes as sexy as possible. Whatever you, you know, there's always these like, you know, sort of aims that you're trying to do with a scene or with a project. But in this one, it was all about let's just tell the truth. Whoever was there, whoever had the most access to it, the truth wins. So it's not about, hey, just let's let but this scene needs to be powerful. It's not about that. Let's just tell the truth. And and I love that. I love, I love that there actually is a right answer. And I love that you can actually do the work and figure it out. And 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 I, I love being part of something, again, with that sort of journalistic integrity where that's really what we're going after. And you know, that scene specifically, I was really honored to be a part of it. I I, I really am proud of the way that you know, we did it. And, and, and I'm proud of how together it brought all of us, especially the folks who, 
you know, were part of the uprising and the police officers that were there to sort of, you know, quell the uprising. And, and, and now years later, you know, these folks were really coming together. And I, I learned a lot that day. It's that kind of amazing layer of documentary is the wrong word, but kind of bringing in that kind of authenticity that it's so unique and, and certainly in this show is so deeply felt. I'm curious, I, I was I was talking to your director, Rinaldo Marcus Green, and he mentioned, was there a situation where, where like a bystander kind of like took a swipe at you or something like that? Yeah, or there was yeah there was. It was that day. It was that day. I mean, look, you know, I think for, you know, there was a guy who, uh, you know, I, I had worked with those stunt guys, um, you, you know, in the scene, somebody throws a, a brick at me and it really did happen to Wayne that day. And he ran into the crowd and kind of got into a scuffle with those guys and, and pulled them out. And those guys, their stunt guys I've been working with for years. They were all on Punisher with me. I know them really well. And we, we, we have a really good rapport and we can make things pretty, pr- pretty rough and pretty real. And I, I feel really comfortable with that. But yeah, we were about 20 takes in. Then all of a sudden there was one guy that I definitely didn't recognize. There's a guy with dreadlocks. And I was like, who's this guy? And then he reached back and I said, he's going to sock me. And, and, and sure enough, yeah, he did, man. He, he took a swing at my, uh, at my face. And so I blocked it with that shield, but it, it cut my face. And I, you know, I figured it was just sort of somebody who wanted to be a part of the scene, but you, you know, I hit him back and, and, um, and he fell down and, and, uh, you know, we finished the scene and when the scene was over, you know, the guy came up and, and you know, he was he was pretty messed up. But, he, he, you know, he, he he came over to me, and gave me a huge hug, man. He's like, oh, you're real, man. You really you know, you really gave it to me good. And I just felt like that was such a Baltimore moment. You know, he <laughs> I, you know, the, 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 you know, at that point he ran off and a couple of real police working active police officers were chasing him. He just happened to be a guy walking by. I don't know what his intentions were of trying to hit me, but um the fact that he stuck around and gave me a hug afterwards and sort of complimented me, uh, it just said so much about it. It, w- it was a real Baltimore moment. Um, but yeah, I don't know, man, there, there was, um, that was not that big of a deal. You know, it, 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 again, you know, my, my big takeaway from that day was really the coming together of that part of Baltimore. And, and, um, I'll tell you another thing, you know, that, that I really took away from this is, is, um, there's a guy named Keith Galliano that I got enormously close with while I was there, who was a, a, a protege of, of Wayne's. And, um, you know, now he has, I talked about sort of the district access versus citywide, but he's got now federal access. He's, he's kind of, people call him super cop. And, and uh, we had to be really close. And he was one of these guys who, who watches The Wire every year. And what he says is um, he's an unbelievably respected police officer, you know, from, from East Baltimore, you know, from, from the city. And, and, you know, what he said, you know, the, the wire taught him and, and that what he feels like is the biggest problem with policing right now is he says, man, we never admit when we're wrong. Like we're trained to hold this line and never find fault in each other. And because things are so, so divided and because it's always this us versus them mentality, this sort of good guy, bad guy set on different sides, you know, literally us versus them on the sides of the drug war, we are taught to hold a line and never admit culpability, never to take, you know, responsibility for what we do. And he said, that's the biggest problem. He's like, we've got like the only way we grow is when we start admitting responsibility for the things we, that we do wrong. And he said, then we need to find the guys that are doing it right and, 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 and really shine a light on them and, and let them lead, you know? And so instead what we do is we just like deny culpability at all costs. And, 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 and that's quite toxic. And um, that really stuck with me. 
I would hope that like something similar is gotten from this show, which, you know, as you were saying, the complexity of, of, of what it's approaching and the clarity with which it approaches it, uh, you know, is ultimately really kind of devastating. I- I'm curious to know, uh, so uh, this interview will be coming out after the end of the show. So I want to ask just one kind of question about the, the end of oh, We Own This City, um, w- which ends with... Wayne and this just kind of really extraordinarily lingering moment of Wayne in prison, almost having a bit of a, I guess you describe it as kind of a daydream sequence before we kind of end with him just, you know, where he is. Talk to me about what to you is kind of going through Wayne's head at the end of the series and what you're kind of trying to play both in that super swaggery dream sequence and then where we leave off with him just kind of all alone in the prison yard. Look, it's a good question. I honestly don't know that I can fully answer it. I, I, what, I, what I hope is that everybody sort of has their own answer for, for, mm-hmm. for that. And, and I mm-hmm. hope that everybody sees a bit of themselves uh, in Wayne in that, in that moment. And it's a big, you know, for me, when the storm quiets, I think that because it's a nonlinear piece and because we see these sort of fragments of Wayne's life throughout the piece, you know, the thing that's really, really important to me in the depiction is that things really spiraled, like things really spiraled out of control. And a lot of that was created by his own greed. A lot of that was created by the culture of policing that he came up in. A lot of it was created by the systemic sort of problems with policing at the time. A lot of it came from where Baltimore was at, at a city, but it was like this sort of perfect storm with this perfect sort of cipher to get just completely carried away in his own greed and evil doings. Right. And What I think that sort of the quiet of the end is he's always got these two things battling each other. I'm the best cop in the city. I'm this convicted criminal. Like he's like, I'm, I'm, I'm engaging in this criminal activity, but I'm also, I I can do this because of this, this, this happens because of this. And they literally, they're, they're, they're sort of like interchangeable. And, and, and I think, you know, ultimately it's like, now he's got nothing but time, you know, now he's got nothing but time to, to, to reflect on it, to focus on it. And I think, you know, just like your question about what Wayne's like, I think he's still going through that in the course of, you know, he's in federal prison. When you talk to him on the phone, you get 15 minutes in a 15 minute phone call. He'll talk about his innocence and he'll talk about his guilt in that same phone call. It is constantly this, this swirl of these two things. Well, how could I be this if I was this? And both things are true. And, 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 and he's really, really confronted with that. And I think, you know, time, time, uh, you, you, you know, he's, he, he's got nowhere to run now. And, um, you know, whether you want to take that as something tragic, whether you want to take that as something, you know, justice was served, that's up to the eyes of the viewer. But that, that's where it was, I, I think, for me in playing the, playing the part. It comes across so well that it's so tricky, I think, to capture that kind of paradox. And truly, you know, in those final moments, I think uh, what you're doing as an actor is just so extraordinary. Now, um, also extraordinary, I have to mention this on a somewhat lighter note. Um, so my wife is from Maryland. Uh, she's my expert when it comes to Maryland accents, Baltimore accents, and she's usually very dissatisfied with uh, the kinds of accents that happen on screen. Um, I do, man. She was, listen, two thumbs up. Oh, over thanks here. So I appreciate it, man. <laughs> well, what is it about that accent that seems to be kind of trickier for some actors? Because I feel like I know that uh, you're kind of from the area. Does that kind of help you kind of capture the specific kind of Wayne Jenkins uh, Baltimore accent? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'll be honest with you. No, uh, not at all. I am from D.C. Uh, it's it's uh, that's not a Baltimore. That is a Middle River accent. It's, you know, Wayne, it's, it's super specific. And I was really worried about it because I really... 
you know, it's, it's much more country than, than a Baltimore accent and middle river, even though you can, you can literally be in middle river less than 10 minutes from downtown Baltimore. It is a completely different world, like completely different world, completely different kind of folks. And I was so grateful to be able to really be there and spend time there. But I worked with a, an incredible dialect coach named Jerome Butler, and we worked tirelessly on it. And, and honestly, I think, you know, having that, you know, seven page monologue be my first day, it was a great thing to, you know, really get that, you know, I, I, I had to be completely dialed in, you, you know, by the time we got there. Um, but no, I, I, I'm glad, I'm glad she said that. And, and it was really important to me to, to, to try to get that right. And, and, and again, I think if you're, if you're lucky enough to be in a piece that really values the truth and the, and the truth is your North star, it's like, hey, you, you, you better do that work. You know, you, you better get that part of it right. You know, I, 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 I also I've just I, it needs to be said, you know, I'm 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 enormously grateful to Ray Green. I worked with him on King Richard. He's my favorite person to work with. He came over and did this with me. And to have that guy supporting me in, in, in this was really everything. And I'm really proud of our, our relationship. I cherish him. And, um, you know, if, if people dig this performance, you, you know, it's as much Ray as it is, as it is me for sure. Uh, we own this city uh, finishing up on HBO. such an amazing series. Uh, John, uh, what's coming up next for you? I know uh, you have a new podcast uh, that you're working on right now, right? Yeah. So that's that, that, that comes out uh, once a week, every Thursday, it's called the real ones. I think similarly to what we're talking about, you know, it's definitely not um, a Hollywood podcast. It's not artists or celebrities. It's, it's, um, you know, I just feel like the state of discourse in this country right now is is, is so unbelievably damaged and toxic. I, I feel like everybody is, again, you know, just it's so polarized. I think things like patriotism and strength are being confused with bombast and rhetoric and everybody's just waving their flag and picking sides. And in my experience, I've been unbelievably blessed to both learn from and love folks who really walk the walk on these issues, not just talk about it. So on my show, it's special forces soldiers, it's police officers. It's gang members, it's um, guys who, you know, done 20, 30 years in prison, it's surgeons, it's teachers, it's coaches, um, it's, it's real folks who have really lived life. And I think to a person, what I found is they really live their lives with, with empathy and, and they don't pick sides. They, they, they see value in, in all kinds of people and they have the strength and the formidability to sit down with any kind of person and realize that we have so much to learn from each other and, and, and that the tribalism is, is that th there's nothing weaker. And I'm really proud of the show and, I, and I'm, I'm really, really grateful for the folks that, that come on. Um, they've really taught me a lot and I think we all have a lot to learn from them. The show is not about me. It is definitely about the folks that, that, that <laughs> so come check on. out the John Bernthal show weekly is what it sounds like. No, I, I understand that. It sounds like, uh, you know, doing some amazing work there. How about uh, anything else coming up on the movie and um, TV front that uh, you want to kind of tell our, our listeners? Yeah, about? I, you know, I, I did a movie with uh, Lena Dunham called Sharp Stick that was at Sundance. It's coming out soon. And then I have a television show coming out. Uh, I'm not exactly sure when that comes out. But uh, yeah, and then uh, we own the city on HBO. Amazing. John, uh, thank you so much for all the amazing work on the miniseries. And uh, thank you so much for uh, talking to us today about We Own This City. Thanks, man. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Fantastic interview. And this series, you know, it's so interesting because um, it's really sad to say how many different shows we could have on TV examining police corruption in cities across the country. Uh, you know, Baltimore has happened to take a little bit of uh, heat, uh, you know, in some TV shows because that just happens to be, happens to be where David Simon uh, set some shows. But, um, you know, a show like this, when you're really turning focus on, you know, people who are supposed to be the most morally sound, I mean, that makes for great television. But and then in this case, 
it's a true story, which is, it's just wild. Yeah, it's extremely timely. And at the same time, mm. too, like, John Bernthal, fantastic actor. I feel like that's the other part for me with shows like this is as you get into this mm -hmm. sort of controversial uh, storytelling, you have to really, really trust the people involved to tell it correctly. And I feel like yeah. him, you know, kind of what he seems to express in this interview is like that was really important to him uh, to get yeah. it right, to be true. And that seems to just be how he conducts himself across projects and which I already always really respect. Yeah, he's, you know, I, I love a, a project like this when someone like, John Bernthal, who's, again, one of those people who's so good in everything, really gets, uh, you know, kind of a showcase. And, you know, playing this real guy here, Wayne Jenkins, uh, it's just kind of wild, even how he kind of continued to try to even manipulate John's perception of the story. So, um, you know, the, these kinds of stories are important ones to tell. And, and I'm glad that uh, David Simon and, and uh, George Pelicanos did so. Uh, it is one that is definitely worth checking out. And with that, folks, that is it for this week's episode of The Awardist. If you like what you heard, please do follow, rate the podcast, and leave us an award-winning review on Apple Podcasts. And to keep the conversation with us going, follow Entertainment Weekly on all socials at EW, on Twitter, and at Entertainment Weekly everywhere else. You can also tag me at Jared Hall. We'll see you next week. This episode of The Awardist Podcast is hosted by Jared Hall, produced by Chanel Johnson and Sammy Junio, edited by Sammy Junio. Full episode transcripts are available at EW.com. Thanks for listening. Listener.